One of my favorite sporting events uh, that happens every year is the March Madness College Basketball Tournament. Uh, the way the tournament works is there are 64 teams. They're divided into four regions or uh, areas on the bracket. And then uh, the teams that are the highest ranked will play the teams that are the lowest ranked. And then basically the 64 keep going down until you get to the final four, the final two, and your champion is crowned each year. But my favorite part of the tournament is actually the first round, because in the first round, you have the number one seed, the juggernaut, facing off against the number 16 uh, seed, who are basically some no-name school from somewhere in America. And then the number two seed play 15, and three play 14, and so on and so on. And uh, very rarely does the underdog actually win. It happens sometimes with like the number 14 uh, team beating number three, or number 15 beating number two, but it's only happened one time in tournament history where the number 16 team in a, in a region, in a bracket, beats the number one team. It was in 2018, the University of Maryland, Baltimore County School. Uh, their team name is the Retrievers. <laughs> so they sound very fierce, right? <laughs> like the team that just comes up and is like, hi, we're here to play basketball. Uh, they beat the number one seed team, the Virginia Cavaliers. And it was this huge moment where they, they weren't supposed to win. They were the underdog. They won. The crowd went wild. They throw the basketball up in the air. Everyone comes on the floor from the, the bench. They're cheering. It was a, a huge moment. Everybody loved an underdog story. That's basically why we watch this tournament is because you want to see the underdog win. So a few weeks ago, Pastor Jeff uh, asked me if I could preach a sermon in our Ecclesiastes series. He said, look, we're not going to go through every single verse in the book. So just pick a, a chapter, pick a, pick a passage, pick a text unit that uh, you want to preach on. So I'm reading through the book of Ecclesiastes and read through it a few times, listened to it on my Bible app. And uh, this one particular story stuck out to me time and time again. So here's what we're going to spend our time looking at. Today, we're going to look at Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 13 through 16, and we're going to hear about an underdog story. Verse 13 of Ecclesiastes 9 says, I also saw under the sun this example of wisdom that greatly impressed me. There was once a small city with only a few people in it, and a powerful king came against it, surrounded it, and built huge siege works against it. Now, there lived in that city a poor but wise man. And he saved the city by his wisdom. But nobody remembered that poor man. So I said, wisdom is better than strength. But the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are no longer heeded. Do you hear the underdog story? You have this huge army, great king coming against this small city. And here's this poor man who saves the day. It's, it's a great little story. There's some questions about whether or not this was a real event that took place, uh, whether Kohelet was referring to a particular circumstance. Um, it's actually kind of a common plot in the ancient world of a great army coming against a small city and defeating it, uh, but actually not defeating it because some unknown hero comes and saves the day. There's a a story actually in the Bible in 2 Samuel chapter 20 of a story that kind of sounds like this. There's this uh, small city called Abel Beth Ma'aka, and uh, there's this uh, army coming to defeat it. And there's this wise woman who talks to the army and says, 
hey, don't kill us all. What, what can we do for you? And they say, oh, we're actually just here to get one guy. His name's Sheba. And the wise woman says, okay, well, look, if we cut off his head and throw it over the wall to you, uh, is that enough? And they were like, yep, good for us. And so she saves the city by doing this one act of sacrificing Sheba and killing him. And uh, the city is saved, right? The underdog actually wins in that story. So there's some question about whether the Ecclesiastes story I just read to you is referring to a real event or whether Kohelet is just kind of using a, a general plot that would have been known in the ancient world. But regardless of whether this is an actual story Kohelet is referring to or if it's just kind of like a general parable of a common or known plot, uh, I still think it's a great thing for us to think through and investigate more. It's in God's word. So let's, let's think about it a little bit more. So we're going to do that in two ways. First, we're going to try to understand the story. And then secondly, we're going to look at two implications from the text. So first, let's understand the passage. Ecclesiastes 9 verses 13 and 14 says, I also saw under the sun this example of wisdom that greatly impressed me. There was once a small city with only a few people in it, and a powerful king came against it, surrounded it, and built huge siege works against it. So the point here of the story is that uh, there's a contrast taking place. There's a small city, there's the underdog, the number 16 seed, and there's a great king and his army who's coming to destroy it. Now, it's key for us to know that Kohelet is talking about a small city. Here's why that's important. Uh, we're not talking about here like a, a village, like an agrarian uh, collection of homes. It's not like the, the, the Matsqui Flats. Um, what it is, is a small, but it, it's still a city. So what that means is that there were actually walls that would have been put up to protect the inside part of the city where, where the, the commerce and the, the politics and the culture and the arts would have all taken place inside the city with the walls defending it, protecting it from any uh, outsiders. And so on top of the city walls that would have protected the inside, you would have had these watchmen and they would be looking out around the surrounding area to see, is there anyone coming who's gonna to try to get us? And what you have in this story is this small city that is uh, besieged by, that is attacked by this great army, this great king with great power. And so this isn't like a, a bomb that comes in and destroys a city and no one saw it coming. This would have been something that the watch tower guards, the watchmen would have been able to look out and say, we have bad news coming. There's actually an enemy that's approaching us and they're really big and they're going to defeat us for sure. The, the text actually says that there were only a few people in the city. That language um, is probably not referring to the population base inside the city but is probably talking about there's a, a few men who are there to defend the city. So basically, the small city doesn't have a whole lot of people that are ready and able and competent to fight against the, the number one seed coming towards them and uh, wanting to attack them. Th this is a contrast of, uh, of a juggernaut coming against someone who can't actually protect themselves well enough. The language of siege works here is uh, you need to imagine in your mind the small city has these walls protecting them and the opposing army that's trying to defeat them would uh, have with them uh, all of these different materials that they would uh, bring and, and then compile and build uh, ladders 
that they could come and, and put up against the wall, depending on how high it is. They might build uh, towers where uh, an army could stand on and shoot arrows over it, or um, just, they would be building these, uh, these pieces of equipment that would enable them to actually go over the wall. The siege works are built to go over the wall and defend the city. So uh, there's probably one guy in the army whose job it is to like check the front door. <laughs> the army comes, they have all the material for the siege works and they're like, all right, uh, Bobby, go check the front door. He goes to the door, nope, locked, okay. We got to build the siege works. And they had a lot of people to build really big siege works to come and attack this small city. But verse 15, there lived in that city a man poor, but wise. And he saved the city by his wisdom. But no one remembered that poor man. So you have to imagine, right, the scene here where you have the, uh, you have the army coming you have the watchtower guard seeing them come and scream down to the people inside the city, oh, they're coming, <laughs> we have problems. So that would have sparked probably a bit of a kerfuffle in the city walls. People would have started to have a bit of a brainstorming, bring out the whiteboard. They're gonna bring out the whiteboard and they're gonna have a bit of a town hall meeting here. And everyone starts raising their ideas. Um, some of the fools are saying, okay, here's what we should do as they're coming. Uh, we, we should just pretend like they're not there. Right? Maybe, maybe the watch guys were wrong. I saw that guy was drinking a little bit. Maybe he didn't actually see what he thought he saw. Or some other fools might say something like, you know what, I think even though there's only a few of us, we could totally take them. Let's just like fight fire with fire, baby. We'll, we'll take them out. So there's all kinds of ideas swirling around. And then the scene is that there's this, this poor man, uh, this unexpected source of wisdom, this guy that, that nobody pays any attention to because in the ancient world, if you were poor, you were poor for a reason. You're either lazy or you're not smart enough or you're not competent. You're, you're poor for a reason in the ancient world. And the poor man comes with uh, a word of wisdom, the text tells us. We don't know what that wisdom was. Maybe it was the same kind of wisdom that the, the woman in 2 Samuel 20 brought, which was like, I don't know, let's see what they want. Maybe they only want one of us, like, like Sheba, and we'll, we'll cut off the head and we'll send it over. Maybe that'll work. We, we don't know what the poor man said that was wise, but it doesn't really matter what he said. The point is that he spoke wisdom and that his wisdom led to the deliverance of the city, right? The underdog wins. There's the number one juggernaut coming against him. The number 16 seed team has no chance, but out of nowhere comes the hero, the poor man with his wisdom. And he saves the day. But the story takes a bit of a weird turn because verse 15 tells us that nobody remembered that poor man. It's almost like the next day uh, after the army, you know, takes a, starts uh, taking apart their siege works and they start leaving. Uh, the poor man comes back in the town square and he's like, hey guys, it's good to see you. And the people around him are like, sorry, who are you? He's like, you know me, I'm Phil. I I'm like the, here's how we defeat the juggernaut guy. And they're like, oh, Phil, that was so yesterday. Let's move on. So he had a great idea. He saved the day, but nobody remembered him. Verse 16, so I said, wisdom is better than strength, but the poor man's wisdom is despised. And his words are no longer heeded. Okay, I have a question. His words were despised? Why would they have been despised? What, weren't his words, his wise words, the thing that saved the city? 
wasn't it his ideas that actually delivered them from the attacker? So I get why they might not remember him anymore, and I get why they might not listen to his words any longer, but, but why does verse 16 tell us that the poor man's wisdom is despised? Seems like they thought it was a good enough idea to listen to it and defeat the enemy with it. So I got to be honest with you. When I started studying this passage, I thought for sure that what was happening here was an underdog story. And verse 16 kind of threw me for a loop. What, what does it mean that the, the wise poor man, was his, his wise words were despised? So when you come to a passage and you don't really know what it's talking about or something pops up that you're like, why is that there? Uh, you keep reading the surrounding context. That's the, the best rule of, of Bible study, right? In real estate, the rule is location, location, location. In Bible study, the rule is context, context, context. So verse 16 didn't make a lot of sense to me, so I kept reading. Verse 17 and 18 says this. The quiet words of the wise are more to be heeded than the shouts of a ruler of fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Why, why is Kohelet? after telling this great underdog story, landing in a place that is the wise man's words are being despised and uh, one sinner will do, uh, bring much harm or destroys much good. What, what, why is there so much negativity at the end of a very positive underdog story? So uh, I read the context after verse 16, so I decided to read the context before verse 13. So I read verses 11 through 12. I, I tried to figure out where the text unit might start. I read the beginning of chapter 9, and I, I, I came to verse 11. Here's what verse 11 says. I've seen something else under the sun. The race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise, or wealth to the brilliant, or favor to the learned, but time and chance happen to them all. Moreover... No one knows when their hour will come. As fish are caught in a cruel net or birds are taken in a snare, so people are trapped by evil times. That fall, unex uh, the, the evil times fall unexpectedly upon them. Verse 13. I also saw under the sun this example of wisdom that greatly impressed me. There once was a small city. And here goes our story. So as I'm reading the context before our little parable, uh, I still couldn't wrap my mind around what's actually happening in this scene. Now, I'm not a massive Hebrew scholar, and because of that, I, I have to rely on other English translations. I know a little bit of Hebrew, but not enough to do this all on my own uh, by myself. And so I, I decided, look, I'm going to trust the team of translators that work on all the different English translations, they all know Hebrew a lot more than I do. So when it comes to this underdog story that we have in Ecclesiastes 9, 13 through 16, there's no consensus in the English translations of the text unit itself, right? That little bold section in our Bibles that give us like a bit of a, a summary of what follows. The ESV starts this uh, text segment uh, that the story is in, in verse 11. Uh, the NIV starts in verse 13. There's no consensus about what's around this text that's immediately related to this story. There's also no consensus on the best way to understand the language of the scene itself. But after studying this passage for a while <laughs> and thinking about it for a while, uh, here's my best go 
at the translation of this passage, and it's going to combine the NIV version and the NET version. And I think that this reading of the passage gives us the best sense of what Quohelet was after. Here's what it says. Verse 12, moreover, no one knows when their hour will come as fish are caught in a cruel net or birds are taken in a snare. So people are trapped by evil times that fall unexpectedly upon them. I also saw under the sun, this example of wisdom that greatly impressed me. There was once a small city with only a few people in it and a powerful king came against it, surrounded it and built huge siege works against it. Now the NET. However, a poor but wise man lived in the city and he could have delivered the city by his wisdom, but no one listened to that poor man. So I concluded that wisdom is better than might, but a poor man's wisdom is despised. No one ever listens to his advice. Verse 17 in the NIV. The quiet words of the wise are more to be heeded than the shouts of a ruler of fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Okay, here's a funny thing. Not funny, haha, but funny, interesting. I chose this passage because I like the idea that the underdog wins through their wisdom. But the more I study the text, the more I realize that I, I don't actually think that's what is happening here. I don't think that Kohelet is telling us that the number 16 seed team beat the number one seed team. I think the best reading in light of the context is that there's a little city that was destroyed because the ruler of fools wouldn't listen to the wise poor man. It's actually not an underdog story. Uh, but here's the thing. There's no consensus on the best way to read this. And it, it's okay because uh, this story, it's not, uh, it's not a basketball game where you have to know the winner or loser or else nothing good can come out of it. It's a piece of literature. And uh, the author is, is trying to have us understand what we can learn from the characters in this story. So, so whether or not the city was destroyed, uh, the two implications are, I think, or at least two implications are still very valuable for us. Those two implications are, first, we should be like the poor man. And secondly, we shouldn't ignore wisdom. So let's think about those two things. First, let's think about how we should be like the, the poor man. Uh, one of the reasons why this, this scene, uh, wh whether or not the city was delivered or not, is interesting to, to me uh, is because it really does uh, feel like a great microcosm of what Ecclesiastes is teaching. So Ecclesiastes, one of the big points of this book is that uh, the, the teacher Kohelet is telling us that everything in life is uh, the NIV says meaningless, or other translations say vanity. Uh, they're, they're interpreting, uh, translating the, the Hebrew word chabel, and basically what that, that Hebrew word is getting after is this idea of like mist, or, or breath, or smoke. Uh, it, it's getting after this imagery of something that's fleeting. It, it's, it's definitely there for a moment. It just doesn't last. So it's like on a really cold day. You go outside and you take a breath in and you breathe out when you see your breath and then it dissipates and it's gone. That's chabel. That's what life is. It's this real thing for a moment and then it's gone. And this passage is a perfect microcosm of what's taught by health and Ecclesiastes because 
what it's telling us is that, sure, all of life is chabel. All of life is this, this misty, vapory, not lasting kind of thing. And yet, we should still try to live well and wisely in it. We should still commend the poor man for bringing his wisdom, which either delivered the city or could have delivered the city if people listened to him. Sure, th things aren't going to last forever, but that doesn't mean we still keep doing the right things, right? It's, it's like someone who says, you know what's frustrating is when I go outside in the cold and I take a deep breath in and I breathe out and, and then I see my breath and then it just goes away. And then they tell you, it's like, why do I even breathe at all? Well, no, look, you should still breathe. Sure, you can't see your breath forever, but it's still a good idea to breathe. Or someone says, look, uh, I'm, I'm hungry and I'm frustrated that I have to have dinner again today. I had supper yesterday. I'm going to have supper tomorrow. Why do I have to have supper today? I'm just going to be hungry again. Well, no, look, it, it, it's good. Even though the satisfaction in your belly won't last, it's still good to feed your body when it's hungry. Even though things won't last, it's still good to do the right things. Whether or not the city was delivered or not, it was still good for the wise man, that poor wise man, to come forward with his wisdom because it mattered. It was the right, it was the right thing to do. That's what Kohelet is getting after in Ecclesiastes. Sure, nothing lasts, but that doesn't mean we don't live the right way. So the city was, I think, destroyed. I think the poor man was ignored. I think his words were despised. I think that makes the most sense of what the passage is talking about. And still, it was good for the poor man to speak wisdom. Look, we should be like that poor man and speak up. So maybe I was wrong in my reading of the text. Maybe the city was actually delivered. But then isn't that even better reason to speak up in situations, right? So imagine uh, with me, you are, you're feeling compelled in a workplace situation. Something's happening. Uh, may, maybe you work in a uh, car dealership and uh, you have one of your salespeople that is acting unethically, uh, but they're a senior salesperson and you just got started. Look, you, you know that you confronting this senior salesperson with their very clearly unethical work has risks to it. So is there any point even speaking up? Well, what if you're speaking up actually causes that senior salesperson to listen to you? Wouldn't that be better for the clients, for the customers that you're dealership to have, uh, you know, they leave better Yelp reviews because <laughs> they would feel like, no, they treat me really well there. Or maybe someone's being mistreated at your workplace and or at your school. And you see this mistreatment taking place over and over again. And, you know, look, everything around this person, it, it's so easy to pick on them, but it's not right. And you decide to speak to the power you, you speak to the bullies. You, you speak words of wisdom in a situation that needs it. It's a good thing to do, regardless of the outcome. It's good for us to speak words of wisdom when it's needed. And look, if I am right in my reading of the text, 
and the poor man was ignored, I still think it's good to speak up when we feel compelled to. I don't know if you know this, but, but there's a lot of people who disagree on how to handle the COVID situation. Uh, how many, uh, how, how strict should the lockdowns be? We, we have people in our church who feel like Bonnie Henry should act more like uh, other provinces and be more strict. We have other people in our church who feel like Bonnie Henry is a draconian overlord who is taking away every little last inch of our freedom. We, we have people in our congregation who, who stand on very vast spectrums on this very controversial issue. And everyone thinks we're right on it. Look, it's wise for us to speak up when we feel compelled. That's a good thing for us to actually do. It's not, look, there can be this assumption that uh, it's the Canadian, it's the good Canadian thing to do to not say anything ever. To just always keep our thoughts to ourselves, to to not bring things to the light in the moment when they should be brought to the light, and then uh, tell all of our friends about how our boss or Bonnie Henry or someone else is wrong and, and crazy because they think this or they think that. And so instead of actually just speaking words of wisdom into the situation, we, 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 we stay quiet and then we gossip. But that's not right. It's better to be courageous in the moments, to speak into the moments when we feel, you know, that unction, that, that internal sense that, that we need to say something here. It's a good thing to speak up regardless of whether people listen to us or not. It's a good thing to speak up with courage. It's also a good thing to speak up in, in a way that is actually wise itself. Here's what I mean by that. Just like it's right to act, even if we can't guarantee the outcome, there's also actually a right way to speak. Proverbs 17 says it this way. The one who has knowledge uses words with restraint. And whoever has understanding is even-tempered. Right? There's a way that we speak. It's not just that our words are wise, it's that we say them wisely. Galatians 5, one of the best passages of what it looks like to, to, to be changed by the power of the gospel is the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So look, we should speak up and also... When we speak up, our speech should smell like the fruit of the Spirit. It should smell like self-control, and it should smell like patience and peace. We should speak up. And also, it may, look, maybe I was right in my read of the text, and maybe the poor man was actually ignored, uh, but he still should have spoken up. So look, we should speak up even if we don't think anyone's going to listen to us. Maybe you're right about the best way to handle COVID and all of its implications. Maybe you're right. And also maybe nothing will change. Maybe you'll write the letters and and maybe you'll do everything available to you to actually go through the process to, to change the mind of Bonnie Henry to either be more strict or more loose or whatever way you think she needs to be. And you write the letter and you do the things you feel compelled to do. And maybe you're actually right and maybe nothing changes. It was still good for you to speak up. And God is still in control. Do we trust him with the outcome? Do we trust that God's wisdom is actually better than our wisdom? 
Do we trust that God is actually getting exactly what he wants to take place for some reasons beyond us? Proverbs 21 says that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. God is in control. Maybe you're right. And maybe nothing will change. God's still in control. And look, maybe you're right and no one's going to listen to you. And maybe it's actually good that they don't listen to you or they don't listen to me because, look, maybe I'm wrong. Look, I don't think I'm wrong. None of us think we're wrong. We all think we're right. That's why we think what we think. Proverbs 21, 2 says, Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, the Lord, but the Lord weighs the heart. Look, maybe we should speak up, but maybe nothing will change because maybe we're actually wrong. We don't think we're ever wrong, <laughs> but we are often. Look, I, I chose an interpretation of this passage. Uh, maybe I'm right. I think I am. That's why I taught it the way I taught it. <laughs> but, but maybe I'm wrong. Look, I think it is the way of wisdom to believe strongly the things we believe and to act wisely in speaking up. I also think it's the way of wisdom to recognize that even though I believe this very strongly and I have good reasons for why I believe it, I think the way of wisdom tells us that maybe we're wrong. So look, whether the city was destroyed or it was saved, whether we are right or we're wrong, whether we're listened to or we're not, it is always good, even in a fleeting life, to speak wisdom. So we should be like that poor man. We should be that quiet voice in the midst of the muttering fools who says, I think there's a better way. We should be like the poor man. Who knows, maybe the city will be delivered. Secondly, let's not ignore wisdom. Don't ignore wisdom. Look, the poor man was this unexpected source of wisdom. That, that's what makes this story so compelling in the ancient world, is that no one would have expected that the idea that saves the city comes from the poor man. Everyone would have expected it comes from the ruler, because the ruler's the ruler because he's the smartest guy around. Or at least it would have come from one of his nobles, or, or at least from one of the, the leading academics in the city, or, or the, the, the upshot young star who's the smartest person anyone's ever met in their life, but not the poor man. The poor man's poor for a reason in the ancient world. But look, we shouldn't ignore wisdom, no matter how unexpected the source. Right? If the city was delivered, it was delivered because the people listened to the wisdom from that unexpected source of the poor man. Or if the city was defeated, it was defeated because they despised and ignored the wisdom from the poor man. Either way, what happens to the city is kind of secondary, peripheral. The main thing, one of the main things we need to get from this text is that the, we should not ignore wisdom. We should listen to it. Ecclesiastes 9, 17 says that the quiet words of the wise are more to be heeded than the shouts of a ruler of fools. And there's so much 
that that this speaks to in our life. Uh, one, one little quick aside for us. Look, if we are in any way a leader, right? So maybe you are a parent or maybe you are a coach or you are an employer or a manager of people or whatever. You're, you're in some kind of position of, of leadership and oversight. Maybe we lead one person or we lead 10 or we lead 100 people. Here's something I want to ask those of us who are leaders. Are we the kind of leader who is ready and willing to listen to the wisdom that comes from unexpected sources? Are we the, the kind of leader that, that listens to the people that we lead? Even if they are the one that we think doesn't have much to add to the situation. Maybe the best idea will actually come from that unexpected poor man. So are, are we as leaders actually willing to, to listen to wisdom wherever it comes from? We, we shouldn't ignore wisdom. But, but the point of not ignoring wisdom is actually not just for leaders. This is a lesson for all of us. It's a lesson for every single one of us that we should not ignore wisdom. One of my favorite uh, scenes in all of scripture is uh, Luke 24. So Jesus has, uh, he's lived his life. He did his public ministry. He was uh, arrested and he was crucified and he rose from the grave. He uh, came to his disciples in the resurrected, in his resurrected body. And he finds some disciples who are heading on a bit of a journey to a place called Emmaus. And the risen Jesus comes to them. And he starts talking to them about all kinds of different things. They don't recognize him at first, but eventually they do. And in this scene, Jesus does this. It says, verse 27 of Luke 24, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Now, I want you to imagine you're one of the disciples with Jesus on the road to Emmaus. And Jesus takes your, your Bible and he opens it. And he turns it to Ecclesiastes chapter 9. And he reads verses 13 through 16 about this city that is uh, an underdog. And there's a poor man who has some wise things to say. And uh, you hear Jesus tell the story and you think to yourself, man, that sounds a little bit confusing. Did, did the wise man win or not? <laughs> and Jesus says, I actually really like this story. And he looks you in the eyes and he tells you, uh, this one's about me too, actually. You see, we have an enemy that's against us. We, we have an enemy that is external to us. The, the, the great king of the earth, our enemy, the devil. We also have an enemy that's within us. It's interior to us. It's our sin. So the town hall meeting begins. What do we do with the enemy that is surrounding us? And there's actually some fools in this town hall meeting. And these fools speak up some of their ideas of the best way to handle the enemy. Uh, there's some fools there who say things like, look, I don't actually know if the watchman knows what he's talking about. I don't actually know if there's a, I think he was drinking a little bit. He didn't actually see very clearly. I don't think there's a problem. There is no sin that's a problem. There is no devil who is trying to oppose us. There is no siege coming against us. But, 
Can you hear the king on the outside of the walls? Can you hear him talking to his army, saying, all right, man, I found the weak spot in the wall. I found where it's lower. The ladder won't have to go as high here. I found our way in. Do you hear him? Do you hear that enemy who's out to get you? You see, the fools are going to talk, but we know there's an enemy and that it's real. There's other fools that are talking at this town hall meeting. They're saying, look, we can fight up against this enemy with our own weapons. I know there's only a few of us, but sure, look, Steve's been lifting weights. He's been doing push-ups. Let's put Steve on him. He'll, he'll handle it. No problem. We can totally overtake them, these fools in the town hall meeting say. We, we can totally overtake Satan and sin on our own. We can make our lives what they need to be. We have within ourselves the ability to find the flourishing life. We can do it our own. The fools say, but can you hear the king instructing his army to build the siege works? Can you hear on the other side of the wall that thud, thud, thud in the distance of nails being hammered into wood to build the tower? That's going to be the key piece in your sure defeat. Can you hear them? Can you hear the enemy? See, fools are going to say that we can do everything on our own, that the life that is full of flourishing, that brings deliverance, is one we can do ourselves. But we know that our enemy is actually stronger than we are. The town hall meeting is loud and everyone's talking. They're bringing up their own ideas. Everyone has their own thoughts. The fools are speaking. So cue the poor man. On the road to Emmaus, Jesus probably reminded his disciples that he had no place to rest his head in his ministry. Jesus probably reminded his disciples in that moment that Jesus is the poor man who was despised and rejected by those in the city. Actually, he wasn't just despised and rejected and ignored. The people didn't just say, ah, don't listen to him. Instead, the people said, crucify him. Jesus uh, probably also reminded these disciples that he is himself wisdom enfleshed. Paul in 2 Corinthians, uh, sorry, 1 Corinthians 2 tells us that Jesus is the wisdom from God. Jesus is wisdom. Jesus tells us, look, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. If you come to me, you will never thirst again. I am the way to satisfaction. Come and find your rest in me. I am here to give you life and life to the full. Jesus says, I am wisdom. Jesus is the poor man. Jesus is wisdom enfleshed. Only Jesus will save us from our sure defeat from our great enemy. Look, it was evil for Jesus to be crucified, to be punished as though he did wrong. The crucifixion of Jesus should not have happened. And yet, our triune God took the most horrifically evil event in the history of the world, the killing of the God-man. Our triune God took that evil event and he used it to disarm and to defeat the great enemy king, Satan. 
on the cross when Jesus Christ died and in his resurrection and in his ascension, Jesus is victorious over the great enemy king, the devil. He, he is victorious over the powers and the principalities and the authorities of this world. Jesus is the victor over evil and the evil one. In the very moment that evil thought they had won the day, Jesus, the poor man who is wisdom himself, said, no, I am speaking a better word. You see, our triune God took the most horrifically evil event. And he took that event and he did more than just defeat the powers of the world. You see, Jesus was punished even though he should not have been. It was the most evil thing in the world to kill the God-man. And yet, in the very moment when Jesus was crucified, in his resurrection, in his ascension, Jesus has secured the victory, not only from the devil, but also from our sin. You see, the problem is not just that there's an enemy on the outside trying to come and get us. The problem is that there's an enemy on the inside that is corroding our heart and will kill us. And Jesus, in the great moment when the enemy thought they had won, Jesus actually defeats our sin. He dies for our sin in our place and he offers us his perfection. This poor man, wisdom and flesh, delivers. So, the enemy is here. And death is near and the town hall meeting is a buzz and people are asking everyone, how are we supposed to get out of this situation? Can you hear them? Can you hear in the quiet the words of the wise man who's telling you, come to me. Come to me and you'll find life. Come to me and you'll be delivered. Can you hear? Jesus is the poor man. Jesus is wisdom and fleshed. Jesus is the deliverer. The great enemy king has you surrounded. You're outnumbered. You're overpowered. The siege works are being built and the ropes are being swung over the high walls that you thought were there to protect you. But there's a poor man and he's speaking. So you have an option. Do you listen to the fools who say there is no problem? Do you listen to the fools who say we can overtake that enemy on, in our own power? Or do you listen to the still, small voice of the wise, poor man who says, come unto me, and I will give you life. How will you respond? Let me pray for us. Father, I'm thankful for this passage. I'm thankful for the way that your spirit enabled 
your servant to write it and how your spirit opens our eyes to see what it has for us to believe and what that means for our life today. Lord, I pray that you would help us be the kind of people who speak words of wisdom when they're needed. You would help us be the kind of people who listen to the wisdom of others, even if it's coming from an unexpected source. And Lord, uh, we praise you for the unexpected source of our salvation found in Jesus Christ, the poor man. Slain for us, risen in victory, ascended, reigning, coming again. We praise you for the good news of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask that you would make him famous. We pray this in his name. Amen.